Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. We're really happy to have you here tonight for this fabulous event. Christopher Moore has been to the title cover for almost every book that he has written, but never to this store. So this is his first visit to the Colfax store. So, yay! A momentous occasion. So, as I told Chris, I'm not going to show his baby pictures. I'm not going to talk about his early years struggling as a writer. You all know who he is. We are all so excited to have him here tonight and to listen to him and not me. So, please join me in welcoming Christopher Moore. That was my first curtsy of the tour. So... You guys are special. Thanks. Oh, hang on. I have to. This mic is almost perfectly adjusted, which means I don't have the first five minutes of my material. Um, <laughs> let me put that there and that there. Thanks for coming, you guys. So I wrote this book. Um, you're, it's very smoky here. That's that's new. I'm used to the weather going from, you know, like snow to fire in 12 hours, but... So, is that just weed? Is that... <laughs> I've been hearing everybody I talk to who's come through Denver, they're like, man, you wouldn't believe the weed economy. <laughs> Everyone's a billionaire. And they're high. So, my kind of people... Anyway, it's so nice. I love coming to Denver. It's my second favorite town. Um, you're like, what? It's my first favorite. San Francisco, of course. Yeah. Yeah, one day you guys will get to put this patch on your Rockies <laughs> Now that I've got you all turned, for, you're on my side. Um, so, anyway, that happened. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote this death book. And um, I, there are a couple of reasons. Because when we get to the Q&A, you're going to say, well, why did you decide to write a, a sequel? And as with most of my other books, it was request. You know, because you guys kept writing and say, why don't you do a sequel to a dirty job? And I was like, I cannot think of a reason. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and the other was that um, Charlie, the main character in A Dirty Job, is a beta male, which is defined pretty ex- uh, extensively in A Dirty Job as a guy who sort of makes his way through life. His strategy for, for survival is not being big and fast, but having in the imagination to avoid danger and, and anticipate it. And sort of making your way by imagination is kind of who I am, you know. And so I thought, I left him trapped in a 14-inch meat puppet with a giant dong. Um, <laughs> That, that just isn't where you should leave your friends, you know. So I thought I'd, I'd try and um, I'd try and resolve that. But but when I when I wrote the first book, I and did it, was anybody here to hear me talk about a dirty job? It's like nine years ago now. So but not most of you. That's good. I can use that material again. Um, <laughs> So I, I, had, uh, I thought I had learned something about death and dying, and I thought I'd have something to say, so that's why I wrote the first book about death. But since I wrote that book, I haven't learned that much about death, really. I mean, the, other than I'm sort of almost there. I, um, well, here, so my mother died, my, my father died at 49, and my mother died at 60, and I'm 58. So I may not be at death's door, but I'm certainly on the porch. Um, and I'm not, don't be sad. You know, it's like, I've, I've talked about this in, in front of audiences and people come up or you guys write me and say, well, you know, I, I lost my father or my husband or my brother or whatever. And this book spoke to me and so forth. And, or people might be sick and they'll come up and say, you've talked about this. And, and here's the thing, I'm sorry for your loss and I'm sorry if you're ill, but we'll be all along to join you soon. 
you know, it's okay. That's sort of the reason I wrote the book is that we all shove that back into the corner. We act like, oh, well, that's never going to happen to me. But that's not necessarily the case because death runs in my family. Um, It may run in yours as well. We we could be related. Uh, But... uh, you know, one of the things that happens when you're on death's porch is that your friends start to die off. And my best friend from high school died about a year and a half ago. Um, and I, he lived in Ohio, and I lived, had been most of my adult life in California. But we kind of stayed in touch. And I went back for his funeral. And there was a guy I had never met before who stood up, and he was a, a pastor. And he was like a youth pastor, one of those guys that was a heroin addict and, you know, a pimp or something and had become a pastor so those those guys really are they're really motivated to save other people because they were really horrible and and um and you know bless their hearts but he he said he was the first one to speak at my friend's funeral and he said well keith was i could see he never said and i'd always talk to him about the spirit and but but i could see in his eyes in those last couple of days he looked at me and i could tell that he had let the spirit in. And I thought, you know, I knew Keith pretty well. And I, we had talked about these things. And that look in his eye was, what can I say to make this guy go away? <laughs> um, so, so I was the last to speak. And nobody knew who I was because I hadn't been there for 30 years. And um and I told the story about, and it's something you guys may have known if you've, if you've read um, The Stupidest Angel, and that's Christmas Amnesty, in which if you haven't called somebody back or returned their emails or written them a letter or answered the door when they showed up for any amount of time, if you've been a total shit relative or friend, you can show up at their house at Christmas time with a present, and they have to forgive you and act like nothing happened. <laughs> and, and I had done that, I think, when Keith went to college, because he was a little bit older than I I was, and, and we had fallen out, uh, out of contact for about five years, and then like one Christmas, I showed up at his, at his house with like a six-pack of Pepsi, and I was because like, when we were kids in like junior high and high school, we would go to his house because his parents would let us smoke, and his, but his dad would always complain, you guys got to bring your own Pepsi over, I'm spending $400 a week on Pepsi, because that's, you know, it was weather in Ohio, and we had to smoke inside, anyway, so... <laughs> I brought him a six-pack of Pepsi, and then we went out to coffee, and it was really awkward because even though Christmas, Christmas amnesty um, dictates that you're supposed to act like nothing happened, um, no one had actually articulated that law yet because I hadn't written that book, and so it was weird. And we just sort of were like, you want to go get some coffee? Yeah, sure, let's go get some coffee and act like you haven't called me for five years. And we're sitting there, and we order coffee, and the waitress brings it, and she goes, cream in your coffee? And we both busted out laughing. <laughs> Laughed until that, that, that laughing that you're going to go, don't say anything funny, don't say anything funny, because you think you're just going to die from not breathing. Because when we were, I don't know, 14, it was always that joke, cream in your coffee? Not lately. <laughs> so, so I told that story at his funeral. Uh, Because they needed it after the youth pastor. And, and it was shorter than his other favorite joke was, dumb folkers were Messerschmitts, and, which takes like a half an hour to tell, which is why I'm not telling you that joke. But anyway, so that, that's what happens when you're on death's doorstep. Uh, you, you start, get, you know, your friends start to die. So that was what I've learned since then. So there's a funeral of a guy's best friend in, in this. And my editor was like, I think we need to cut this. It's a, I'm like... We're not cutting that. That's the only thing that's even remotely real. Um, <laughs> so, uh, um, the other thing that happens when you start to to run up on death's porch is you start paying attention to the news, which you never really did before. Now, you guys who are not on the porch with me, you're like, no, I get my news from social media, which I also do a little bit because I'm an author. I have to pay attention to social media, so I know things like, you know. Lenny Kravitz's schlong came out before I know, you know, that there was a shooting in Charleston. I knew, uh, you know, I knew Jonathan Franzen said something stupid in Vanity Fair before I knew three Americans took down a terrorist on a French train because that's how social media gives you uh, 
gives you news, right? But but you know, you start watching the real news like it matters, you know, and and following that sort of stuff. So, and then and you know that the news is is geared toward people who are in death's porch because of all the ads, because they're all they're all for medicine. All of them are, you know. And I just and I don't really pay attention to the ads because they don't really most of the time tell you what it is that they're for. Um, it, you know, I, I don't know if I have chronic dry eye or diabetic nerve pain, you know, or uh, painful postmenopausal boning, or you know. Uh, but when they start whipping out those side effects, when they start going through, you know, anxiety and nervousness and high blood pressure and anal itching and so on again, it's like when they go or death, I'm like, what? Yeah. Okay. I don't even need to. If one of the side effects of the of the medicine is death, I don't even care if my truck is stuck in the mud and I can't figure out how to MacGyver my two horses out to get them to pull my truck out of the mud because evidently that pill does that. I don't know. I don't. I don't know quite how that works unless he's just like going behind the horses, like get on up there, big. Giant Woody, and he's chasing the horses to pull his truck out of the. Mo- I know it's a metaphor. I know, <laughs> guys. I I realize it's a metaphor, but it would be cool if it wasn't. You know, <laughs> if they just had <laughs> Grandpa out in the yard with the kids. Just like, oh, Grandpa doesn't need a bat to play wiffle ball. Just throw it. Just throw it. Just. Call the doctor if we're still playing in four hours. Uh, uh, so, but, you know, as soon as they're, and I'm fine with that. I'll call the doctor. I have wood. Um, what do I do? But, <laughs> I haven't actually called the doctor to, to ask him that. I assume that they refer you to someone. Um, but uh, now they have uh, Lady Viagra, and that's not really being advertised yet, but I guess the side effects are sort of, you know, they're not going to call I don't know what they're going to call it yet. I think that they should, I think they should um, consult Ben and Jerry's for the name of Lady Viagra, you know? It's like Chunky Monkey. <laughs> I think that would be good. <laughs> American Dream Cone. Um, I think that would be. I think that would be good for like regular Viagra. Like, don't make me get the American Dream Cone out. Bow chicka wow wow. So I'll just give you a moment to think about Ben and Jerry's flavors that should be used for dysfunction, sexual dysfunction drugs. And if any of you says New York double fudge, I will turn this car around. <laughs> I will go, we are going right back home if any of you even brings that up. You know. But that's how we do it on Death's Porch. Although Chubby Hubby is a little bit too on the nose, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's how we do it in two bathtubs. You and your sweetie in one, and death peeking over the edge of the other one. <laughs> what are you guys doing? I'm a side effect. <laughs> but it's there is a break. There is a break when you because uh, when I'm when I'm running on the treadmill. Now the thing is, once you're uh, once you start living on death's porch, your whole what's your workout goal changes. Because it used to be like, I remember going to the gym 20 years ago and the trainer, they'd make a trainer talk to you the first day and they go, what's your fitness goal? And it'd be like, oh, I'd like to get my body fat down to 11% and yada, yada, and be able to bench press my own weight or whatever. And, you know, now it's like, to not die. You know, every run is running to not die. It's just, you're just running from death. And so, but on, but on the treadmill, at least if I, I watch, um, um, what is it, the CW is that, is that the wrong? Yeah, I watch the CW when I'm on the treadmill because while all the shows are about dead people, 
into like the vampires and zombies and all, and all sorts of stuff like that. The commercials, the side effects, the, the worst side effect you're going to get watching the CW is like smoky eyes. Because uh, it's all like Maybelline commercials and, you know, skin stuff like that. Because it's a much different, it's not the Death's Porch demo going to them. So just so you know, I'm sort of done with the symptoms thing. I, the other day I was in my office... That's the other thing, you know, is I forget stuff, and um, which is why I write them down sometimes, and um, you know, or in this form. Uh, and uh, I was in my office, and I smelled grilled cheese, and I was like, I think that's a symptom. <laughs> and I was me, and because I was at my computer, I'm like, what's a symptom of smelling grilled cheese? Well, it turns out the symptom of smelling grilled cheese is someone nearby maybe making grilled cheese. <laughs> but in, you know, reading to the second Google page, which exists, if, in case you didn't know it, it's like the smell of burnt toast. You could be having a, a stroke, you know. But I was like, I didn't know that. Yeah, so the, yeah, I thought, grilled cheese, maybe I have that thing where the elephant sits on your chest in Venice. Uh, <laughs> what is that? Well, it's like, if I, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that that's a drug for you can't breathe. That's way enough motivation for me to maybe check into it. Rather than, or if an elephant sits on your chest in Venice. Because you would get to go to Venice <laughs> and meet an elephant. So actually, that shouldn't even be a side effect. That should be a benefit of that drug. You should be able to sue them. It's like, I took five of these and there's no fucking elephant and I'm still in Denver. Um, <laughs> I can't even write about being too goddamn high like Maureen Dow did when she ate that, that candy bar in Denver. <laughs> Did you guys read that stupid shit? <laughs> wow. If she didn't have the entire faith and power of the New York Times behind her, I would have flamed her big time because all I really have is the entire faith and power of like 2,000 Twitter followers. But it's like, girl, you went and ate an entire candy bar of weed <laughs> for the first time? <laughs> That's like, you know... I've walked on level ground. I think I'm going to try that Everest thing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then she condemned all weed into eternity because she got too damn high in Denver. I'm sorry. I know you guys probably hear more about weed than you want to, but that's what the rest of us hear about you. And I'm like, man, I, <laughs> Denver sounds fine to me, but <laughs> Marine Dowd shit is fucked up. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I was on, I was on, um, I, I, I was in my office and I was smelling burnt toast and um, or bur- I grilled cheese and I, I realized it was not burnt toast. So that is, you know, so you don't go away from here without any useful knowledge. If you smell burnt toast, it could be a symptom that you're having a stroke or someone has cranked the dark on your... On your toaster and, and, and it's burning toast, you know, so you know. I'm just worried about now that I'm living on, on um, Death's Porch that one day I'm going to wake up and believe all that silly shit they say on Fox and Friends, you know? <laughs> all that. <laughs> just, yeah, we should be building a wall on the border. Yeah, because that'll work. <laughs> Just like it did for the Chinese in 800 BC, before anybody invented ladders. Because I don't know about how it is here in Colorado, but in California, where a third of everyone is Latino, they have mastered ladder technology. <laughs> you know? So I'm not so. I know, I know, I know. It's just, it's not just going to be a wall. It's going to be drones too, because that worked in Afghanistan when we had 65,000 troops and the entire air force and a border that was 600 miles shorter than it is here, and they still couldn't close the border and an impassable mountain range between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Hmm. Yeah. That it's the only pass is famous. Yeah. And they still couldn't close that border, and there was no job on the other side, nor Taco Bell. <laughs> So yeah, that wall will work. But here's my proposal. 
Here's my proposal, and this this is my this is what happens when you live on death's porch and you have to pay attention to the news because oh my god, they could say something that the symptoms are death, and and that is kind of the same people that want the wall want the Keystone Pipeline. Hear me out. The Keystone Pipeline runs from Canada somewhere all the way to Houston. Drop that bitch further down to Mexico. Put a bridge along the top. And then just hand snacks and bottled water to people as they cross the bridge into Canada. Yeah. Who says you can't be bipartisan? That is a total win-win thing. People get across the border. They're met with someone, you know who hands him a hockey stick and, you know, how's it going? Hey, here's your syrup. And, uh... <laughs> go Leafs! Uh, I'm just trying to solve some problems here up on Death's Porch. That's all I'm saying. The other thing that I started doing, we have, we have an attacker in our neighborhood. I'm not, I'm not bragging about that. We just do. And, um... And, you know, and he's not, he's not a rapist. He just sort of gropes women, which is, you know, unpleasant, probably. And, uh, and so Neighborhood Watch went out and was telling everybody. And, and, and so all the, you know, guys, the married guys and the guys who, with living girlfriends were like, God, thanks for telling me and so forth. But the younger guys were all like, he better not try that here. I will kick his out. Kill that fucker right on this. And I'm like, but the guys like my age are like, hmm. And so I have pepper spray. I have a little thing. I don't even know how, if it works. I just bought, it's like the size of breath spray, and I'm not even sure which end the stuff, but that's my thing. If someone's like mean to me on the bus, I'll be like, I will season you. Uh, you know, because I'm old. I don't know if I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I could just take that guy down, you know? And so I'd be just like, you will be muy caliente by the time I'm done, you son of a bitch. I mean, Taco Bell has a ghost pepper, a ghost pepper burrito. That is not a weapon any longer. If you can, if you can buy it and eat, well, maybe. I may have to ponder that and factor it into my Keystone Pipeline bridge. Um, let me let me get back to you next book on that. Um, the other thing is that is that when you're on when you live on death's porches, I just don't wear pants as often. Um, I'm not going commando. I just am always like wearing sweatpants or something really approximating PJs. But but what usually workout things. So like if the UPS band comes, I'm not embarrassed that it's three in the afternoon and I'm still in my PJs. You know, I'm just like I am getting ready to go for a run. <laughs> from death <laughs> yeah I can sign for that um, another thing that came into this book from living on death's porch is that I have a it has a I, and I didn't realize until I finished it it has a lot of get off my lawn kind of humor you know it really does it's, it's just because we have a, a, a lot of, you know, I'm sure you don't have them here in Denver. We have a lot of in Hayes Valley and in, in, in a neighborhood in San Francisco we have a lot of hipsters that um and, and they wear... Yeah, I know you guys don't have that here. Um, that's why I'm going to tell you about it. And they wear little sweaters that are fully grown-ass men that wear, like, like boys size 7 cardigans around and shit, you know? And, and these guys are all working at Google and Twitter and Jenga and, you know, Salesforce.com. So they're actually working a lot, and they don't work out. So they're wearing teeny tiny clothes on a very unfit body. And... And I can tell you from some experience, because I at one time wore five-inch tall white platform shoes, <laughs> they're going to be embarrassed about that someday. But I, <laughs> and all through the book, I'm like the tiny sweater guy. Um, yeah, there is no, there's no decade in my life that I don't look back at the guy I was 10 years ago and go, what an asshole that guy was, <laughs> you know? And that's just where all those hipsters are going to be. But right now, I'm sort of in, up in their face. But that's what, that also sort of relates to this. And um, Oh, we have plenty of time. Um, that sort of relates to this in that 
you know, you all have stages of that. Now, think about those, those of you who are people of faith and you believe that you go to heaven. That could totally be. Um, which of you goes to heaven? Is it the person that you are right before you die? Because if it is, it means that heaven is full of people complaining about their bowel movements. And, you know, <laughs> I wonder if they ever built that wall. Uh, God, I love that Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> love that guy. He's just, he's just smart. And I like. Anyway, um, so that's not, that can't be right. That can't be the permanent part of you is who your personality was. You know, what if it was when you were 19 and you just wanted to build a life-size pyramid of Cheops out of Coors cans, you know, or that can't be, you know, that can't be, or, you know, but I'm going to make the biggest bong ever, you know, <laughs> you know, that's, is that who you are when you go to heaven? And so I talk a lot in this book about the separation of personality and and the soul, that permanent part of who we are, the self. And, um, and, that's, and, and when you see the various stages of the spirits in the book and the creatures in the book, they're sort of like the, the squirrel people who are back, by the way. They're a little bit... Yeah, they're a little bit goofy because they've been out of their bodies for a while, and so the personality part of them is, has sort of gone away, and they're a little bit closer to the essence of who they actually are. And so I think Alan Watts, who was sort of a, a drunken Zen spiritualist, <laughs> um, he talked about that, about which, which, uh, which you is you, what's yourself, what's your soul? Because we, I think, always view it as who we are right now. But what if it's not? You know, what if it's like when you're six? Like the funniest thing ever are boogers, you know, and you know, and the, that's paradise. Everybody's running around like you, Dookie Head. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't have an answer, but I do talk about it a lot in there, and, along with all my get off my lawn humor. Um, and uh, uh, the other thing I talk a little bit about is the hellhounds are back, and I have them eat um, uh, comfort animals off of people's lap. And if you have a comfort animal, I'm. <laughs> You know, if you have a comfort animal, I'm sure that it's. I'm not talking about you. I'm. I'm talking about. I'm talking about those people who who abuse their comfort animal thing. Because I I fly a lot, so I sit in the lounge waiting for my flight to be called, and I and I see the people with their anxiety animals, and it they're not helping because they're going back and forth to the counter a million times to see if they can get their animal on the plane, and is their animal going to be okay? And I was like. Why don't you just do what the rest of us do? My, my comfort animal is called Xanax. <laughs> you know? It's very portable. I don't have to carry a pad for it to wee on. or Because there was... And people who need real service animals, they hate comfort animal people, right? So, you know, so that it, I'm not talking about service animals. I'm talking about people that are just like, oh, I just can't go on there without my kangaroo. I saw... <laughs> I saw a picture, I'm not making that up, I saw a picture of a kangaroo in the aisle of an airplane that was this woman's comfort kangaroo. Now, if I'm sitting in her section, I'm not comfortable. (laughs) So now do I have to take my two comfort dingoes on, you know, to fend off her comfort kangaroo? I don't think so. But again, much like the Keystone Bridge... I have a proposal. You, you, you may have a comfort animal, but it has to be one kind of animal. A pigeon. Here's why. If there is any animal who understands not wanting to fly, it's a pigeon. Like, if you went up to, if you went up to your comfort pigeon and you say, I got to go to Baltimore this week, your, your comfort pigeon was go, it's not that far. We could walk. You know? Because a pigeon is not going to fly unless there's a little kid behind it going, or a dog chasing it up, right? So, so you got that. You really are simpatico with your comfort animal because neither one of you want to fucking be on that airplane. And if your plane goes down in the snow-capped Andes, they will taste much better than your fellow passengers. So, you know, I'm not worrying for no reason. I'm solving problems for you guys. Not just saying get off my lawn, so... Anyway, so th- those are sort of my, uh, my living on death's porch's observations. So the, uh, the other thing that happened, my, my most recent encounter, is I, I have a place up in the Redwoods where I, I go to write. It's a condo in sort of an enclosed, safe, old people place. And I, was, um, and I was running laps one day from death, 
And, um, and, and the guy two doors down, I only go there when I'm writing, and, and, um, and so I hadn't been there in about six months, and the guy two doors down had died, and he was younger than me, and that's sad. And, um, and there was people, there was an older couple, and they were bringing the shit out of his house and putting it in a van. And, and I ran by one lap, and I ran by a second lap, and I thought, I'm about to go out and go all around the country and talk about, you guys got to step up. You know, because it's really easy in this Western culture to not want to face the fact that we're all on death's porch. And when someone gets sick, we cut off contact with them instead of saying, is there anything I can do? You know, and mean it, you know, I'm sorry. And that's, it's really never enough, but it's what you got to do. And it's, and I thought, I'm going to go tell people, I'm going to scold them about that nicely. And, uh, and um, and now I've just run by these people and I haven't said anything. So I stopped. I, I paused my tunes and I went back and I said, "Excuse me, are you are you Dan's family? I I feel, you know, I I'm sorry. I thought I should, you know, I, he seemed like a nice guy and I'm not up here that often." And and the woman said, "No, no, no, no. This is our our job. We the family hired us to do this. This is what we do for a living. As we go in." take the stuff out of people's apartments and I said oh oh okay I just you know I said can, you know, I'm, can I get your card um, and uh, they looked at me really sort of and I said for my wife for my wife my wife because I'm out here running from death um, so So I, I, I went home and we had to have, we, we had the talk. You have to have the talk. And nobody wants to have the talk. You always go, I mean, even when someone, in movies even, it's like the Terminator has dragged your guts out and you're nothing but a torso and just a stain. And you're like, oh, I'm going to die. And you're like, no, no. It's just the croup. Uh, you'll be fine. You know, your grandma, you're like... You know, that's, I mean, I remember when I was doing it, my mom was, there was no, I saw the x-rays, um, and she's like, mm, I'm like, you know, my strategy was, your hair looks so nice. <laughs> does it really? She's like, yes, it does. It's lovely. And you can't do that. So we, Charlie and I had the talk, um, and she never had the talk with her mom, but she went and took care of her. You know, her mom said, even though she was the youngest, come, you know, I'm dying, come take care of me. And so she flew from Hawaii, where we lived at the time, to take care of her mom, and in the meantime, having not had the talk with her mom, her mom had converted to Catholicism and, and had not told her. And, and she arrived, as, as it happens on Ash Wednesday, and, and went in and went, um, Mom, you've got some schmutz out there on your forehead. And I'm like, that's an honest-to-God true story. And I was like, that's my girl. Yeah. Oh, I would just, of course, I can't take her to India or anything. Cause she, what is that up there? I did, well, let, me, let me get that for you. Um, so uh, anyway, so we we had uh, we had the talk. Um, we have a DNR, a do not resuscitate, which um, you know we talked about. Because the first thing when we were going, we got to have the talk, and it's like, and she was like, no, we don't, and I'm like. Think about it. And she goes, what am I going to do with all these fucking books? Um, and I'm like, see? See? You're going to have to look at every one of these books and make a decision. What would he want? But if you ask me, then I can tell you. And it's like, okay, we'll have the talk. So we have a DNR. I do not recess it, which she takes very seriously. Because I was... Uh, I was getting my colonoscopy, which is once you're on death's porch, and, and I was, she was in the recovery room with me as I was coming out of, uh, they give you a general anesthetic, and I kind of came out of it, and then I went back, and she was like, yank the cord out. <laughs> She's like, I told him I wouldn't let him suffer, and <laughs> the, the nurse is like, you just unplugged my phone. Uh, uh, so, anyway, um, but we had the talk, and so should, should you. And um, so I wrote this book. Do you guys have any questions? Thank you. Thank you. Seriously, do you have any questions? Or any Ben and Jerry's flavors you'd like to suggest? Yeah, what's your, what's your question? I'll repeat it.
Mm -hmm. Way good. <laughs> Not so good. Can it, <laughs> Can I explain the difference between how I wouldn't want to die and how I would? Evidently for entertainment purposes. Okay. Um, I've actually been in that situation where I've gone, this is, you know, been in, in like, gotten into some shit and went, this is a stupid way to die. Yeah, I'm just like, this is going to be so embarrassing for someone. You know? That is not, I mean, if you have that thought, you shouldn't you be thinking like, God, I hope I don't die. You're not. You're like, oh, this is stupid. I got... I got caught in an ocean kayak in between. I, I, it was like big water, and, and I was like, it was on, the, on California, and there was great big pillars of, of, of rocks up by Big Sur, and I was like, I can ride a wave through those. <laughs> I had no idea how, I mean, I could now, but I, I had no idea how to ride a wave on an ocean kayak. I didn't even understand the physics of it. So I was stuck in a point. Uh, you know, and surfers will go to points because that's where the waves get the biggest and the longest. But being stuck out against the rocks and the point and not on your boat, I had that thought. This is really a stupid way to die. <laughs> stupid, stupid way. And I know that dramatically the I'm going to get eaten by a shark thing sounds like, yeah, that's the way. But having been in a situation where I thought that's what was going to happen, it's not that fun. <laughs> It's not that fun. I mean, see, there are two different things. It's like, what do you want the story to be? You know, and how do you want it to happen? I want the story to be something like, it was horrible. He was killed in a teleporting accident. You know, on a family trip to Jupiter. You know? To visit his great, great, great grandchildren. But if, if it's how it happens, it's like I didn't even see it coming. Didn't even see it coming. You know, I, I don't, and it probably that's how, and I know that myself now will go stepping in front of a, I hope it's not stepping in front of a bus or any vehicle, you know, but that could be how it happens. Probably going to be how it, I, I walk in the city a lot uh, and people never get off of their cell phones. So... There's just a, that's an intersection that's waiting to happen. Um, just depends on whether death catches me on my run first. But anyway, that's why I run on a treadmill, because there's no buses. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I would say time travel accident, distant future, or... Um, I, for a while I thought hit on the head with a coconut. When I, when I lived in Hawaii, you know, they have these really tall emperor palms with coconuts on them. And, and I mean, really tall, like 7,500 feet tall. And, and they would hire guys and pay them a fortune to go up and get the coconuts. Because from that height, a coconut would kill you, an un, un, you know, green coconut. And I thought, and I told Charlie this, because that was our first death talk. I said, look, if, if that's what happens to me, if I'm killed by a falling coconut... Tell everybody that's how I wanted to go. <laughs> um, so, any other questions? Sure, over there. Um, of all the versions of me, which one do I want to be in heaven? Huh. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I, 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 am I, you, you guys know from reading my books that I Frankenstein people together, right? You know, I mean, I'm like, that, you go, is that guy based on a person you knew? I'm like, no, he's based on five people I knew. <laughs> you know, that's how I would, that's the version of me. You know, I want the physical, you know, 21-year-old semi-bodybuilder of me, you know, but maybe the 47-year-old kind of has his shit together of me um, before I started forgetting shit a lot, you know? So, uh, 
I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, that's a, that part of us that, that is permanent, the whole point of it is there's no ego. And that's what you have to let go of. And that's an ego question. So you're, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like asking a mouse, what kind of car would you drive? Um, although that was a great book, that mouse and the motorcycle. I love that. <laughs> Mouses love motorcycles, evidently. So, yeah, sure. What would my soul vessel be? Hmm. I'm not, a, I'm not really, strangely enough, attached to things. I had somebody ask me, they had just read A Dirty Job, and it was a, it was a sincere question, and I, and I was you know, somewhat touched that anybody would ask me. And they said that their, their husband had died, how do I tell what his soul vessel is? And I said, well, that's your choice. Whatever you look at and makes you smile when you think of him, that's your soul vessel. So I don't think I get to choose my soul vessel. It's what everybody looks at and and thinks kindly of me. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So, yeah, sure. Um, he asked me if those, if the ghost story, there's a couple of, of sort of standalone, there's actually three standalone ghost stories in this book. And, um, he asked me if those were sort of the play within the play from, in Shakespeare. Yeah. And it, they, it wasn't from Shakespeare that that influenced me. I mean, that, every, I've been reading things for years that have little set pieces in it. It was more just kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to put pieces of San Francisco history in this book. I wanted to write in dialect. You know, because I miss that when I'm not doing, you know, a book with pocket in it, you know, which is all about language, you know, foul language, but language. <laughs> uh, um, that's, uh, that's sort of, I, I wanted to do a baseball story, and I thought that that would be good. There were things that I wanted to put that I thought I wanted you guys to know, like the Friends of Dorothy thing. Yeah. You guys will read this Friends of Dorothy. That's based on a real thing, and I thought people should know this, but I should also make it funny and and play with the dialect. So it's it's set in World War II, and the guy talks like a Damon Runyon character, um, and um, so so it was really just more self indulgence. It's more what I wanted to do, and and if it, what I'm hoping, because not nobody's read the book yet, or hardly anybody is. I hope it works. Because that was the whole thing. Is I, I haven't written a short story in 30 years because no one will pay you for them. But I thought, uh, but I thought, well, maybe if I slide that bad boy in there. But it, it was also I just wanted to. It was. It's more about that separation of personality and and um, and soul. And those are personalities clearly that are not moving on because they're such strong personalities. And so that was sort of uh, why those ended up there. But I suppose it's some influence. There's always a bloody ghost, you know. So. <laughs> Sure. Um, I'm an English major turned pastor, uh, and I'm always looking for historical traits, because that's a large part of what being a minister is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love, I also have favorite characters, which is very much the way you draw history. Mm-hmm. Um, the stories in dirty, she asked me uh, what, what informed the stories about grief in a dirty job. The story of the woman um, dying in the, with the cheese, that happened with me and Charlie's mother. That exact thing happened. She even saw the kid that didn't, wasn't in the room. She saw and said, hey, kid, you know, and, and was laughing at this little boy that none of us saw and all those things. And she was dialing, you know, her daughter on the on the answering the phone on the dog that happened that totally happened the phone rang and she picked the dog up and said hello so so those scenes that i think are probably some of the best scenes in the book um and and the scene with charlie's mother that's my mom totally was so vain she so didn't you know she's just like it's how i look and it's like mom i the thing that i that is in the book and and jane charlie's sister says it about flossing you know, they, her mom knows she's, she's terminal and she sends her out to get floss. And I actually had that experience with my mom. I'm like, Mom, you know what? You can kind of skip flossing now. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, but so those, those were informed by real things. 
Oh, well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. But that's really kind of why I wrote the book was having those moments and saying, okay, this happened and I saw something and felt something. And, and in the book, in this book, the real things are the funeral. Um, although I don't think it's as poignant, but my, my dad was a cop and it's a big cop funeral. And that's what, when you walk out of the church at a cop's funeral, there's 5,000 cops standing there. It's wrenching, you know, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, so that's, that's what is in this book that is real. And then the stories that I thought needed to be told because people just needed to know about like the friends of Dorothy thing, which you'll read. And, um, uh, some of the, some of the, the, the love story between, um, um, I can never, Conchita, I call her cause that's her nickname. Conchita and Count Reznov is real. That's a real story. And it's, it makes, you know, like Romeo and Juliet look like, yeah, you know, that's day at the races. Um, anyway, so are there any other questions? Yeah, sure. Um, he said, dirty job is awesome. Um, uh, I'm paraphrasing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I used to paraphrase, but then I started living on death's porch and it's too dangerous. Um, no, uh, um, sequels are, I'm, I like this one. Uh, it's because you guys asked, you know, um, I'm not going to do a sequel. Somebody told me last night, just tell everybody you're going to do a sequel to Lamb. You don't have to do a sequel to Lamb. You know? Yeah. No, and now what I've decided is I'm just going to wait, you know, and then somebody can rob my grave like Stieg, Stieg Larsson's, and, and someone else will do the sequel. Don't be sad. You'll get your sequel to Lamb, and then you'll be, you'll be sorry you kept dogging me about it. Uh because it'll be bad because I didn't write it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I definitely want to do another pocketbook. I was going to do another pocketbook. I had been working on it for six months and, and, my, and my publisher went, I don't think we want one of those. Okay. I know. I know. So you want to tweak to them what, what's wrong with you. Pine Cove, I don't know because Pine Cove was all about setting. When I was writing a book about, whenever there was a book about Pine Cove, it was because I lived in a town that was based on Pine Cove, and it was because I either had no time to go research or I had no money to go research. So I would just like, well, this one's going to be set in Pine Cove, you know, because I can just look out the window. And, um, and so now that's San Francisco. So going back to Pine Cove is, is not likely, and, and I'm finding it's weird, the characters age. You know, so if I go back, to Molly and, and Theo are like in their 60s now, and I don't know... I know, they'd be on death's porch. Uh, I know, but I, I, I don't, you know, it was weird writing Minty Fresh. I created Minty Fresh in 1992. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but, I, but I'm writing it and I created him in 1992. I'm like, Minty Fresh is not young and hip anymore. You know? He's still, you know, Minty. But, okay, where are we? A couple more questions. Yeah, sure. How long did it take me to write Secondhand Souls? About 18 months, I think. Something like that. Yeah. Most of the books take about 18 months. Usually about six months of research. A book this size takes about six months of research and about a year of actual working on the manuscript. The books like Lamb or Sacre Bleu, Lamb was three years. Sacre Bleu was four. Um, and, and I wrote, I actually wrote Bite Me while I was researching Sacre Bleu because um, the, the re, I knew the research was going to go so long and bite me I didn't have to research at all because it was a, the third in a, a trilogy and it was like the characters were there I lived in the city it was like yeah okay I'll just you know do, yeah half a chapter a day and then you know look at art and stuff so uh, anyway yeah Um, she asked me, uh, you know, because I go to where I research places like Sacre Bleu and Fluke and um, even Island and Sequin Love None. I went and lived in Yap for a while. Don't recommend that. Um, <laughs> and is there a place? I actually, you know, those books worked out pretty well. You know, I, the ones that started with, you know, I want to go here. And to, in order to go there, I'm going to need to write a book about it, you know. And I got to hang out with cool people and stuff like that. So I'm... Uh, 
I, I would love to do another whale book because I love hanging out with the scientists, you know, action nerds. It was awesome. Um, I would, I'm thinking about doing a book set in sort of, all I'll say is sort of northern Europe, sort of Germany, the Netherlands, the Czechoslovakia area. Um, cause I, but I just so I can go hang out there, you know, go like live in Vienna for a month and so it's my job. Uh, <laughs> You know, so so um, yeah. There's there's plans. I mean, right now I'm wor- I'm working on a um, a noir set in San Francisco in 1947, um, and 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 that and that's because. When I sent the proposal in for the book with Pocket, and they said no, I for the first time in my entire career had to go. Um, how about they go? No, how about something else? And I was like, um. How about a noir story set in mid-century San Francisco? Because I had just done a story that's in this book that was kind of fun, you know? And she says, yeah, go do that. And then that's how much I knew about it, you know? Uh, it's exactly as much as she knew about it. So, But that's what I'm doing next because I had to come up with something in the spur of the moment. So, yeah. Um, do I have a favorite character? I like writing Pocket a lot. I like I like the fact that um, he's he's kind of dangerous, but he's tiny and powerless, and but that doesn't stop him from being loud and obnoxious. Um, and, and he's and everything he says isn't just insulting and obscene, but it has to be kind of lyrical. So as a writer, I really I like writing Pocket a lot. He's probably he's one of my favorite characters to write, and it's one of, one of the reasons I'm going back to it. Is is you know I get to play in Shakespeare's sandbox. So one more question, and then I guess we'll sign books. So somebody in the back, that guy in the back, that you get you even have a team rooting for you. To taste the delicious cheese of life. Hmm. You know, if we're doing it right, and I don't claim that I do it right, but if we're doing it right, we're always ch- tasting the, the, the richest cheese of life, aren't we? We're, all, we're always, as the cliche goes, stopping and smelling the flowers. So if I'm looking at it in the future, I can't do that. You know, the, the whole point of that is the moment, is to be present, is to be right here, right now, and and completely aware of that thing that one hopes is pleasant. So if I look ahead of it, I mean, if I go, where? What do I want to be my cheese? I want to be here, listening to you guys laugh at shit I say. <laughs> you know. That's all for tonight's author on tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.